Let's turn over to a passage of Scripture that I didn't get to last night. I was talking as fast as I could, and I just didn't get to this one. But look over in John chapter 5, and this will kind of sum up some of the things I said. It will verify this in uh, no uncertain terms. John chapter 5. And I'm going to read a few scriptures here. They're all really talking about the same thing. In John chapter 5 and in verse 19, it says, Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Some people interpret these passages of Scripture as saying that Jesus was inferior to the Father some way or another, and they try and do away with the Trinity and make Jesus less than God the Father. It's just the opposite. It's basically saying that there was such a unity, there was so much oneness, God and the Father were so one that Jesus could not operate independent of his Father. Just like saying my soul can't operate independent of my spirit. They were one. So this is not anything, this is not lessening Jesus or his deity or any of those things. Instead, it's actually showing the utter dependence that the different parts of the Godhead had upon each other. They just could not, would not operate independent of each other. Verse 20, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Boy, this is a powerful passage of Scripture. If you don't honor Jesus exactly as you honor the Father, then you are not honoring the Father. You remember, this is John that wrote this, and over in 1 John chapter 5, he says, He that hath not the Son hath not the Father. And so it's the same principle being stated in different words. But a person who esteems Jesus as less than God the Father is not fulfilling this scripture. It says you have to honor the Son even as you honor the Father. If you do not honor the Son the same as you honor the Father, then you are not honoring the Father. I don't know how anybody can get around that and preach different doctrines. And I'm not going to get into that, but those are powerful passages of scripture. In verse 24 it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth, on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man." Now, this is a very revealing scripture. It says here that God gave Jesus authority to execute judgment, and then it says because, and it, it tells you why it happened. Why was it that Jesus was given authority to execute judgment? Because he was the Son of Man. The term Son of Man, and you can study this out. I'm not going to take time to do all of this tonight, but you can study it out, and the term Son of Man always refers to the physical humanity side of the Lord Jesus Christ. The term Son of God referred to his deity. Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. That's the exact terminology in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. When was God manifest in the flesh? When Jesus was born. Jesus was God. 
Jesus was God, but he was also man. He was all man in the physical, natural realm, but he was all God in the spiritual realm. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but the Bible teaches this. And so when it refers to Jesus as the Son of Man, it's always referring to his humanity. And he says here, the reason that he had authority to execute judgment in this earth is because of that physical body. See, this is exactly the point that I was making yesterday, and that is that our physical body is what gives us authority. When the Lord said in Genesis 1:26, you have dominion over this earth, over everything that breathes, over everything that moves, when God said that, then he bound himself by his word. And only physical human beings have authority. Even a lost man has infinitely more power and more authority than the devil. Now, the, thing, the only thing that changes that is that a lost man, through his actions, is yielding all of this natural power and authority to the devil. So ultimately speaking, a lost man, a man who is not yielded to God, it, it's just like you know something that has current flowing through it. It's totally being short-circuited. You could put a lot of power, a lot of current into it, but as long as it's short-circuited, it's just going right out of it. But a lost man, if he, if he was not living in sin, if he wasn't yielding himself to the devil, he has more authority than the devil does. Satan is gaining his power and authority from us. It's your physical body that is the key to you having power in this earth. You know, Paul is still alive. Some of you don't think about this, but people don't cease to exist. Paul is still alive, and the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 that we are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. Paul and all of the saints are watching what's going on here on the earth. They are not dead. Now, they aren't in a physical body, but, I mean, they still exist. They are beholding what's going on on the earth. But I guarantee you, I have infinitely more power and authority here tonight than the Apostle Paul does because of my physical body. Now, if Paul had a physical body, I believe he could preach me right into the ground. Amen. But since he doesn't have a physical body, he's not going to impact you. And really, the only power and authority that Paul does have are the physical things that he left behind, such as letters and things like that. They still are letting him have influence, power, and authority in this earth. But your physical body is what gives you power and authority. I don't think most people have understood this. If you really understood that, it's like a weapon. Your body is like a weapon. It's something that empowers you. It's something that Satan would love to have. That's the reason that demons, when they're cast out, besought the Lord. They begged, they pleaded with Jesus to not cast him out into just the deep, but let him enter into those swine. Because even an animal gives Satan some authority, some power, at least their flesh and blood. And it gives him some power to do something. But boy, a disembodied spirit actually has no power except to come to your mind and to deceive you. That is Satan's power in your life. It takes cooperation on your part for Satan to do anything in your life. Well, that is a profound truth. If you could really believe that, if you could really understand that, I guarantee you it would transform your life. It would give you such a sense of that I don't know exactly where the problem is, but I do know this, that I have the answer. I'm the one with the authority, and it would encourage you that when you didn't know what to do, you'd just keep trying. Amen? You'd keep standing in there knowing that eventually, if you don't quit, you're going to win. But a lot of people, they just kind of just resist the devil just a tiny bit, and when it doesn't work, when the devil doesn't fall over and play dead the very first time you say something, then a lot of people 
just kind of feel like, well, you know, I've been a loser all my life. They weren't really expecting more than that. It'll make you go to expecting more. You will expect victory if you begin to understand the power and the authority that your physical body has given you in this earth. And that's not even taking into account the fact that when Jesus rose from the dead, he had all authority in heaven and earth, and now he's given you much more than just human natural authority. You also have supernatural power and authority that is greater than angels. Angels don't have as much power as what you... Or let me rephrase that. Angels don't have as much authority as what you've got. They may have a supernatural power. Like, for instance, one angel struck 186 people dead just in one night. Amen. That's pretty powerful. But we have more authority than an angel has. Let me show you some examples of this. Look over in Acts chapter 1. In verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them... This is Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. This is right before his ascension. This is as he was being caught up into heaven. And in verse 6, it says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but you shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So the disciples were saying, Lord, when is the kingdom? When are, when's your second coming? When are you going to come and establish this physical kingdom that you talked about? And he says, you can't know that. That is not in your power. You know, there are certain things that we do not have power over. And one of them here is that you cannot know the date of the second coming of the Lord. Anytime somebody comes up with 88 reasons that Jesus will return in 1988, you could just write Ichabod right across their forehead because that is not in your power to know that. You cannot know something like that. And people try and get around it and it just... It's not in your power. But Jesus turned right around and he says, but you shall receive power. You know what he's saying is? He says there's certain things that are not under your control, not under your power, not under your authority, but there are certain things that are under your authority, under your power, under your control. And in verse 8, one of those things specifically that he was pointing out is that you shall receive power to be a witness when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. God gave you power to preach the gospel. And if you don't preach the gospel, he cannot, will not do it without you. He will not send angels. Angels don't have authority to preach the gospel. And I'll prove that to you. Turn over to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, and I'll give you an example of this. In the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, in verse 1, says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Now, this was a godly man. He was seeking God, but he wasn't a Jew, and he was separate from the covenants of the promises of Israel, and he was not born again. He believed in God, but this is during that period of time where people were having to transition from just a belief in God and a trying to serve God to where they had to receive this message of being born again. You could not enter the kingdom of God without being born again, without having a new spirit. And so he was seeking God, and God rewarded him for his seeking him in, by, in the next verse by sending an angel. 
In verse 3 it says, And he saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he had looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Now notice this. Here's an angel appearing unto Cornelius, and don't you think that this angel knew the gospel? Don't you think this angel knew what to tell Cornelius? Certainly he did. But you know what the difference is? He didn't have the power, the authority. God did not say that he would ever preach the gospel through angels. He committed dominion, authority, power to preach the gospel to us, physical human beings. And even an angel could not or would not preach the gospel to a person, they had to sin and go to all of this effort to call a physical human being who would come there and say the words. The angels could have said it, but they wouldn't say it because God follows spiritual laws. There are laws. A lot of times people think, well, God could do anything. Well, it doesn't matter if you say he could do anything. The truth is he will not violate his word. When he gives you dominion, when he says you preach the gospel, when he says you lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, if he gave that power to you, God will not violate that. Boy, this is so simple. It just amazes me that people miss this. But I can promise you out of all of the people I minister to, I'd say this is one area that more people miss it in than anything else. They are waiting on God to heal they are waiting on God to go save somebody. Let me just take some examples here. When it comes to salvation, there's a lot of people that are praying for other people to be saved. And what they're doing, I'd say that the vast majority of people, uh, well over 80, 90 percent of all Christians, the way they approach getting some person saved is that they start praying and they bombard heaven and they start begging and pleading with God to save people. And the average Christian believes that through grabbing hold of God and praying and not letting go, somebody's going to get born again. You know that there is not a scripture that I'm aware of. Now, I don't know everything in the Bible, but I do not know of a scripture in the Bible that tells you to pray for a person to be born again. Not a one. There is a scripture in Matthew 9:38 that tells you to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the harvest that would preach the gospel. There are commands to go, but I can't think of one scripture that talks about praying for the lost. And yet I can guarantee you that the average concept of most people is, I've even had people to come before and say, who are your intercessors? Who is it that you send into a place before you go to preach the gospel? And they'll refer back to pray and hide. And I know I may be stepping on some people's toes, but pray and hide's already with the Lord now. <laughs> he's dead, amen. And I know he's not going to be offended. He knows the truth. So I'm not going to offend him. But uh, they'll say, well, pray and hide. He used to go in with Finney and other people, and they'd bombard that place for a month before he came in. And when pray and hide would come into a place and start praying, miracles would start having people to go to being saved, and things would happen. Well, I'm not minimizing that prayer is important. I'm not saying that you can't use prayer and that it has no effect, but I'm saying that the, this concept that unless somebody goes in and prays, nothing can be done. we got these little phrases that we use that a lot can be done after you pray, but nothing can be done until you pray. There's certain times that you don't need to pray. Thank you for that thunderous silence. <laughs> 
You know, I believe that the devil loves it if he could get you to bombard in heaven and just beseeching God for revival and, oh, God, pour out your spirit and, oh, God, save people. And if he could get every Christian praying night and day for the salvation of Charlotte, he'd love it. You know why? Because if everybody did nothing but pray, this city would go to hell because you can't get a person saved through prayer. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, it says that you are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God that lives and abides forever. People get born again through the word of God. Paul said this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God has chosen that through the foolishness of preaching, people have to believe. And there's so many other scriptures. Romans chapter 10, verses 15 through 17 says that how can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless there's a preacher? How can they preach unless they're sent? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You can't get born again without hearing the Word of God. You can't get born again without the seed being planted. That's the exact terminology that's used over there in Peter. In the same way, if you can't get pregnant without being impregnated, you can't get born again without being impregnated by the Word of God. The Word of God is the seed. I've actually, I had a person right here in Charlotte come up to me one time and ask that I would pray with them that they could have a child as a woman. And she asked that I'd pray with her that she'd get pregnant. And I started to lay hands on her and pray with her. And right as I did, I just felt a reservation. And I said, are you married? And she said, no. Boy, I took my hands off in a hurry. And I said, I'm not praying with you. I said, I can guarantee you there was only one virgin birth. You aren't going to be the second. And if you aren't married, I'm not going to pray that you get pregnant any other way. See, you can't get pregnant by prayer. Now, I do pray with people who are barren, and I pray with them. But see, what I'm praying is that if there is something that is hindering them receiving the, the seed and getting pregnant, then I'll pray for healing in their body and things like that. But I am not praying for any virgin birth. It just does not come that way. Amen. I've actually prayed with people before that they'd conceive, and then I said, now you're going to have to cooperate, amen, and encourage them. So you can do the same thing with salvation. You can pray, and there is a right way to pray. Let me just real quickly give this to you, and some of you, this could totally change the way you pray for people. Instead of getting this attitude that for some reason God isn't even concerned about this person. It's just like God's so busy with so many other people that uh, if you weren't praying and beseeching God and pulling on his arm and twisting his arm, God's liable to let this person go to hell because he's busy. So you got to get in there and you got to get hold of God. No, God, save this person. No, God, I'm pleading with you as if God doesn't love him. You need to throw that thinking out the window and recognize God loves whoever you're praying for more than you do. And if you have any compassion for this person, it's because God already had compassion for him and he's trying to motivate you to get in there and do something. So you can just th throw out all of the time that you're pleading with God and asking God to save a person. You do not have to get God motivated to save anybody. He's already motivated to the point that he sent his son and died for him. So you don't have to pray anything about that. What you do is start by praising God and saying, Father, thank you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, Father, I know it's your will that this person be born again. And then you can pray other scriptures. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus is a propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice, the payment, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so you can say, Father, you've already paid for this person's sins. 
It's already a done deal. You've already done your part. You don't have to ask the Lord to do anything. He doesn't have to lift the finger to get a person saved. He's already done his part. And you just pray those things to assure you. And then you say, Father, the only reason they hadn't believed is because 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the gospel, talking about the word, should shine unto them and they should believe and be converted. And so you say, Father, I know it's not you. It's the devil that's blinded this person. It's their hard heart. So you take authority over the God of this world that has blinded them and say, I command that blindness, this deception, this hardness of heart to leave these people right now. You can also pray Ephesians chapter 2 where it says that they were by nature a child of, the, of wrath of the devil, even as others. And so they've got a nature that is bound. And so you can sit there and break that nature and that, that blindness and say, Father, I believe this demonic oppression over them is gone. Then they have to hear the word. Your prayer cannot just get them saved. So what you do is pray Matthew 9, 38. Father, you said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. So Father, right now I'm standing here and I believe that you're speaking to some believer, some spirit-filled believer and in their work, or wherever they are. I've actually prayed this one time for a person, and the Lord showed me as I was praying that they were in a bar. And I said, God, I'm believing that you're sending some believer into that bar to witness to them. And did you know that night a man walked into that bar and started witnessing to this guy, and he got born again? It works. And so you pray, the Lord of the harvest, that he sends forth laborers into the harvest and say, Father, I'm loosening it. I believe that right now if they're watching television, if they're just whiling away their time, wake them up. Let them know there's somebody dying and going to hell that they could reach. And have them get a compassion in their heart for this person. And I pray that the laborer will come across their path and that they'll have wisdom. And I intercede for this laborer that they'll be led by God. And then you pray John chapter 20, verse 23. It says that you have power to remit sins. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. That does not mean you can forgive their sins. God is the only one that can forgive sins. The word remit is like when you're talking about, you know, somebody that has leukemia, and they say it went into remission. The medical profession will never say that leukemia is cured because according to their uh, thinking, you can't cure it. So what they're saying when they say that it's in remission, that means that all of the symptoms, the physical effects of that disease are not manifest. They still believe it's there. It's just dormant. It's in remission. Well, when you remit somebody's sins, it doesn't mean you can forgive their sins. What it's saying is you are dealing with the effects of that sin. In other words, sin hardens our heart, Hebrews chapter 3. Sin is a direct inroad of Satan. Sin will cause sickness in your body and other things like that. And so when you're praying for a person, say, Father, I believe that they are not reaping what they're sowing. I'm remitting those sins so that even though this person is out there in total rebellion to God, they deserve to be hard-hearted. They, they deserve to be bound by their sin. I'm breaking this in the name of Jesus and speaking that, praise God, they aren't getting what they deserve. They're going to reap mercy instead of judgment. That's remitting people's sins. And many times, it's just like a person is bound with chains or something. You have to set them free so that they can even believe. They're so bound in their mind that they sometimes need you to stand there and speak deliverance over them so that they can even exert enough faith and hope to believe. Say, for instance, a person is bound in a homosexual lifestyle. You can bind homosexuality over them. It's not effective totally because that person ultimately is the one that has the most authority over their life. And see, now here, I'm getting a little bit off, but this will bless you if you'll receive this. Here's one of the differences between intercession and praying. You know, intercession is praying for someone else and praying for yourself. 
If you pray for yourself, you don't need to ask for things multiple times. If you ask for it multiple times, you ask one of those times in unbelief. You should have believed that you received. But when you're praying for somebody else, you do need to ask for things multiple times. Why? Because even though you believed you received and you know that God sent the laborers and God remitted their sins and that God's touching them, that person can void your prayer over their life. In other words, you're sending laborers and you pray tonight, God sends a laborer, but they can reject that. They could say, I'm not receiving it. And they could go on their way and they will just go back into that hardened heart. They'll go back into this. So tomorrow you need to pray it again. God send a labor across their path again. God loosen this heart. God, and you keep standing there and you intercede for people over and over because that person is over and over voiding your prayer. So you can pray a prayer of intercession over and over and over, but you don't pray a prayer for yourself over and over and over because you just believe that you receive the first time you pray. And from then on, you fight and there's different ways to pray. Anyway, that's good stuff. So see, this is the attitude that you should have when you're praying for somebody. Instead of coming and all, and then when they aren't saved, you say, God, I just don't understand why this person isn't saved. I couldn't tell you the thousands of people that have come to me and I've had to deal with them because they say, why hasn't God saved this person? They look at it like God has failed. Man, what does God have to do to save a person? He's already sent his son to die for him. He's, he's given us the Holy Ghost that is convicting people. He's doing all of these things. And yet most of us miss it. The reason most people... Now, ultimately, everybody has a choice. You cannot claim anybody and make them get saved. <laughs> and while I'm at it, let me just bring up this passage of Scripture. <laughs> this will get me in trouble with a lot of people. Let's start over to Acts chapter 16, verse 32. And please don't misunderstand me. I, just because I disagree with you doesn't mean that you have to hate me or reject me. We could still disagree and be agreeable. But I believe that this is misunderstood here. In Acts chapter 16, verse 32, the Philippian jailer... Well, let me, let me back up and just read this. It says, The Philippian jailer, uh, verse 29, He called for a light, sprang in, came trembling, fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. There's a lot of people that take this scripture and say, boy, that promised me that not only am I going to be saved, but my house is going to be saved. And so I'm going to pray and take authority and praise God these people are going to get saved whether they want to or not because I've got a scripture to stand on. This does not say that you can get somebody else saved on your faith. The way this is stated, it now you can read that out of it, but it voids everything else that the Bible teaches about salvation. People have to believe on their own. You cannot get somebody saved on your faith. It doesn't matter if they are a family member. They still have to believe. What this scripture is saying is that if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, and your house, the same thing will work for them. If they will believe, they will be saved. But this is not saying that you can believe for your house and get them saved on your faith. If that was so, then I can guarantee you every person ought to believe. Every Christian ought to demand and claim the salvation of their relatives. And if that happens, then as that spreads out, the world could be won in just a week or two, amen, as everybody believed and claimed their house. And we would void the promises of the Word of God that says more people will enter in by the broad gate unto destruction than by the narrow gate unto everlasting life. 
It's totally contrary to the plan, the blueprint that Jesus gave of what the way things would go. And it's contrary to this whole issue of authority. I tell you, one thing that is, a, that is one of the primary truths in the Word of God is that nobody, nobody, nobody can force anything upon you. God has given you a free will, and God will protect your free will all the way to hell. God desires for you to be saved, but God will let you go to hell, and he will stop anybody from trying to make you do anything else. I heard stories before where a guy tackled a man, and this, this guy was about 300 and something pounds, and he sat on this guy and says, I'm not letting you up until you get saved. And he sat there all night long, and finally this guy got saved, and he just says that, see, you can claim people. I demanded it of him. Well, there's two ways to view that. Either this guy lied and just prayed to get this guy off of him, which if he weighed 300 pounds, that is a, that is a possibility, amen. <laughs> but if the guy really was sincere and got born again, it could be that, you know, this just really convicted him about how much this guy loved him. It really showed him, and as he was sitting there, maybe he had to confront it and think about things that he hadn't confronted before. But if he was truly born again, he had to choose it with his will. Maybe he was coerced, maybe he was pressured, but ultimately he could have chosen to go to hell. God will not make you get saved because of any amount of pressure that somebody else puts on you. Now this is an important thing. See, when people start understanding about authority, one of the first things you want to do is go out and just make everybody get saved, make everybody get born again, make everybody get healed, make everybody prosperous. You're just going to stand there and say, I don't care what you do, I'm going to believe and you're going to be healed or... It doesn't work that way. You're setting yourself up for failure. It does not work that way. You can even see an example where Jesus, in the sixth chapter of the book of Mark, Jesus went into uh, his hometown, and because he was a native there, the people despised him, and it says that he could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. Jesus had no limitations. Jesus was operating 100% in all of the authority, faith, and power that you could get and yet Jesus was limited in what he could do by other people's doubt and unbelief. That's what the Bible says. I can guarantee you if anybody could have ever overridden somebody else's will, it would have been Jesus, and yet Jesus did not do it because people have a choice. If you would really read the Word, you'd find out that when Jesus performed all of these miracles, he would preach the Word, and then the healings would come. He sowed a seed to get a harvest. Many times we don't see that. We just read about how he went in and he performed all of these miracles. But I guarantee you there was a reason. The word had to be so. He ordained 70 people and sent these 70 people out in front of him into the villages that he would go into and had them publicize it and bring people together. You know what he was doing? He was telling them that, hey, this guy that you've heard about is coming. And if they hadn't heard about him, they gave testimony and they told they were announcing they were sowing seed that allowed Jesus to reap. Many times we just don't recognize that. We think if we're really spiritual, man, I can go in and I can claim this, I can demand this, and this is going to happen. You cannot do that. It can't happen. If it could happen, then we are totally negligent not to just demand that the whole world... I mean, if you can demand that your immediate family gets saved, then the principle is there. Why don't you demand that your secondary, your first and second cousins get saved and then demand that they start doing it and we can get the world saved and we can get out of here in a hurry. It doesn't work that way. You do not have authority over people. See, when I first started praying for the sick, I misunderstood this. And because of it, I guarantee you, I set myself up for failure in a lot of times because I said, man, 
You shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And you're going to recover. I'm a believer and these signs are going to follow me. Well, it is true that that is what Mark chapter 16 says. But I guarantee you, you cannot take one passage of Scripture and violate other passages of Scripture. The Word fits together. And there are many Scriptures that talk about that a person has to believe to receive. There has to be some measure of faith in any person who receives from God. Many of you don't believe that. Many of you are thinking about, I can show you examples in the Word of God where people had no faith whatsoever. Let's look at one over here in Luke chapter 7. And so here it is in verse 11. And he came to pass on the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of the disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a great fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet has risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. Now here Jesus raised a man from the dead, and I've had somebody come to me before and say, Well, tell me what faith that man had. You say that nobody can receive something unless there's some degree of faith on his part. Just tell me what faith this man had. Well, there's two things wrong with that logic. Number one, we assume that a person who is dead has no choice. And you can't prove that. I can't prove that they do. But you can't prove that they don't. They're still alive. From our perspective, we say that this person's dead, but they're still alive. The Bible teaches that you do not cease to exist. You just lose this physical body. And I've seen a number of people raised from the dead. I've seen two people personally raised from the dead. I've got a guy on staff that raised his daughter from the dead. I personally know over 38 people that have been raised from the dead. I've talked to I mean, these are personal friends of mine. Plus, I've heard testimonies of dozens or hundreds of more people raised from the dead. And every person who I have talked to, when they came back from the dead, there was some choice involved. Many times the Lord had come and say, you have to go back, and they would be disappointed, but the Lord would say, you have to. In other words, he talked to them, and they agreed and came back. Some cases, he literally asked them, will you go back? Now, the point that I'm making is, I can't say, thus saith the Lord, that a person who's dead has a choice, but you can't say, thus saith the Lord, they don't. So you need to get rid of this thinking that what power does a dead man have? You're assuming something that you can't prove. Plus, here is another truth in this same passage of Scripture. Look up and look, see what Jesus did. It said in verse 13, When the Lord saw her, the mother of this boy, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. Now, many times we just read this and forget about it. But you know, back in the Jewish days, they showed respect for the dead by mourning for them. And they actually hired mourners. You can see that when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. There were mourners who were hired to weep and wail. So the Jewish tradition was that, man, you had to weep. You had to wail. There were even people that were paid to weep and wail to show your respect. For Jesus to walk up to this funeral procession, tell the mother not to weep. Man, that was no small thing that he did. I can guarantee you in other cases, they tried to stone him to death. They drug him out to the brow of the hill and tried to stone him. This was just as offensive. And if this woman had not have responded to Jesus in a positive way, I guarantee you he would have been in big trouble. 
there would have been somebody there trying to stone him or to do something. The very fact that he commanded her to weep not and there is no negative response, that says that this woman responded to him. Some of you may not understand this, but I can, I, I've had first-hand experience. <laughs> I had a guy die one time and he told everybody that if he died, I'd raise him from the dead. We'd seen a man raised from the dead in that town. And he was facing a long battle with some stuff. And he told everybody, he says, if I die, Andrew's going to raise me from the dead. Well, he died. And I didn't have any specific leading. You know, there's a lot of things involved there. I hadn't got time to go into it. But you just can't go raise every person from the dead because, again, sometimes people have gotten exactly what they have believed for. There's some people that have sold to the flesh and they're of the flesh reaping corruption without them repenting and turning from that. And you can't stop it. There's some people that, again, I believe they get on the other side and they don't want to come back. You can't always do that. So really, when you're raising somebody from the dead, you need to have some leadership of the Holy Ghost. You need to know, God, are all of the variables and the things taken care of, is this, do you want me to raise this person from the dead? I believe that God would want a lot of people raised from the dead, but not all of the conditions have been met. And the Lord can tell you whether yes, you should, or no, you shouldn't. And there's not every time that I feel an urgency in my heart to raise a person from the dead. But anyway, he'd been telling everybody I was going to raise him from the dead. I didn't have any direction at all, but I was going to go to this um, funeral. And then there were some people in our Bible study, two different Bible studies. They were 60 miles apart, and both of them had visions of me raising this boy from the dead. They shared it with everybody. So we had about four or 500 people from six different Bible studies that I did that came to this funeral and they had all been told that they had seen this in a vision and I was going to raise this guy from the dead. Man, there was hundreds, probably over a thousand people at this funeral. It was about 200 miles from my home, so I drove down and stayed with this boy's cousin. And in the morning when it was time for the funeral, his aunt came and picked us up and she was crying hysterically. And uh, we just thought that she was upset over this boy dying. And, and we had, you know, this is way out in the country. Dirt roads for 50 miles in any direction. And uh, it took us over a mile to get to the main dirt road from this guy's house. And when we got to the main dirt road, instead of turning left and going to the city, she turned right and went the other direction. And we thought, man, she is so grief-stricken, she's not thinking straight. We let her drive for a while, and then we tried to, Lord, and you know what she did? She drove out in the pasture and threw her keys out the window. And we said, what are you doing? And she was crying and she says, his mother, I mean his grandmother, which was this woman's sister, called and says that if I let you come to this funeral and if you try and raise him from the dead, you're going to humiliate everybody. And she made me kidnap you and threatened to disinherit me. She was going to lose 25 sections of land if she allowed me to come to that funeral. So they kidnapped me and took me out in the field and parked me there. How many of you have ever been kidnapped so that you couldn't attend the funeral so you wouldn't raise them from the dead? Kind of in a backhanded way, it was a compliment. But they even felt threatened. So anyway, I missed the funeral. And what was I going to do? Tell everybody that this guy's grandmother was of the devil and kidnap me and blast them and make the family suffer more? The family didn't mind me not being there. If I'd have said something, it would have hurt them. If I didn't say something, guess what? I had six Bible studies that came. 
Hundreds, about 400 people came to see me raise a guy from the dead. And when I didn't show, guess what these fine, upstanding Christians did? They got mad at me. Boy, called me chicken, and I had, out of six Bible studies, four of them canceled and said they never wanted to see me again. And if I would have told what happened, I would have had to insult the family. If I didn't tell what happened, I insulted the believers. It was a bad situation. And this is a little sideline, but I'll just finish up this story and tell you that five years later, this guy's brother went to his pastor and was having all kinds of problems, and the pastor had enough wisdom to recognize that, hey, you got reason why you're so bitter and things are happening. And he started talking, and he says, well, my brother died, and there was a lot of things. And he said, this guy who my brother loved and expected to come raise him from the dead never even came to the funeral. And he shared that. And this pastor had enough wisdom that he says, that's it. He put this guy in the car, drove six hours, and came to my office. Came straight there, didn't call or anything. And it was a miracle that he found me there. But he came right in, and he sat him down. And he says, you two got something to work out. And this brother started saying, boy, we've never forgiven you. How could you have done this? You insulted this whole family. And six years later, I told him, I said, well, would you like to know what happened? And I told him, and man, the moment I told him, he knew his grandmother was exactly like that. And he said, <laughs> and he just asked forgiveness. Boy, God put us back together. He went back and told his family, and God restored the thing. I couldn't have ever done that. I just kept my mouth shut and let God avenge the thing. And you know, God restored the relationship and worked it out. It was good. But anyway, the reason I brought all that up is to say that I know firsthand that you try and ruin somebody's funeral, you're in big trouble. <laughs> Jesus was ruining this funeral, told this woman, weep not. And for this woman, to, for there to be no negative response, apparently this woman responded. And it's possible that maybe she knew who Jesus was and had heard the stories and all of a sudden faith rose up and boy, she decided, well, maybe there's hope, yes. Or if she had never heard of him, maybe the anointing of God was so strong on what Jesus said that faith just rose up spontaneously at that moment. But some way, there had to be a response of faith. And I believe that the reason, why did Jesus just, why didn't he just go raise the boy from the dead and then she would have quit weeping? He didn't have to tell her weep not. Why did he go tell her weep not? Personally, I believe he needed an intercessor. There had to be somebody exercising some faith. And the Bible talks about that a, a child can be sanctified by the parent. Again, a child can't believe for the parent, but a child can be a instrument of intercession. They have more authority over their child than they do, like, say, for instance, over a neighbor or a friend. The Scripture teaches that First 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. So I believe that the whole point of this is that he used that woman as an intercessor. Again, it's an authority issue. You can't just go raise somebody from the dead unless that person is in agreement or maybe you've got an intercessor. See, it's all authority. If you study the Word, there are reasons why things happen. The reason Jesus made people do things is, is an authority issue. In the ninth chapter of the book of John, you find where he had this man and he, put, he spit on the ground and made clay out of the spit and then put it on this man's eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam and watch. And sometimes we read things. I've actually heard people say before that you never know what God's going to do. Jesus did things different every time just to keep you off balance and so that you couldn't come up with formulas and figure God out. That is not so. Jesus didn't do things just to confuse you. God did things because there are reasons. You know the difference about this man in John, the ninth chapter? This man did not come to Jesus. 
and ask for healing. In Jesus' meetings, unlike most of our meetings today, you can be an unbeliever and come to meetings. And some people, they believe that they're getting credit for that. It's a religious thing. And so some people come to church and they pay their dues. And, uh, but there's no faith involved whatsoever. In Jesus' day, Jesus was such an outcast that anybody who confessed that Jesus was the Christ was instantly kicked out of the synagogue. You can see that in the ninth chapter. This very man was kicked out of the synagogue because he professed Jesus as the one that healed him. And so when people came to Jesus' meetings, it cost them something. You were kicked out of the synagogue. You were no longer a part of the Jewish nation. You were disinherited. It was severe. And so people that made it to their meetings, you don't find Jesus telling them to do very many things. He just, man, they would come to him. And this woman that touched the hem of his garment in the second chapter or the fifth chapter of the book of Mark, this woman, he didn't say anything to her except, woman, your faith has made you old because this woman had already crawled through a crowd and she had an issue of blood. If they would have known what was happening, they would have stoned her to death. It was the law to stone her. This woman had already taken a huge step of faith. There was nothing left to do, just reward her, bless her. But this man in the ninth chapter of John did not come to Jesus. There was no action of faith, no work of faith, no authority. His physical body hadn't done anything. There was no release of power and authority. And so Jesus, when he saw him, his disciples pointed him out. And he says, Lord, what about this guy? Why is he blind? This man didn't come to Jesus. His disciples pointed him out. So Jesus did something unusual. He spit on the ground, made clay out of the spit, put it on the man's eyes, and told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I've actually heard teach, people teach before that the reason Jesus did this is to, to validate that God sanctions medicine, that spit has medicinal qualities, and that by spitting on the ground, it was symbolic. He was putting his approval on medicine, and you ought to try medicine first, and only if medicine won't work, then try healing. Boy, now that is stretching it to the max. If spit has medicinal quality, let's spit on all the blind people and get them healed. Well, that's ignorance gone to see. It was an authority issue is what it was. This guy hadn't taken any action, no authority, no act of faith had been released. And so Jesus did something to give him something to do. And he told him, go to the Pool of Siloam. If you look where he was coming out of the gate of the temple and the Pool of Siloam, it was three-fourths of a mile through the Jerusalem streets, which, you know, were busy. This man was blind with spit dripping off of his eyes. This guy's no different than any of us. If there had not been some degree of faith in his life, I promise you that guy would have wiped the spit off and would have gone back to shaking his tin can and begging. He would have said, this is stupid. For this guy to go three-fourths of a mile through a busy city street with spit dripping off of his eyes and washing the pool of slum, there was some faith present. And the reason Jesus did this was because that faith had to be acted on. The faith isn't complete until it's acted on. Until your physical body gets involved in faith, you have not truly believed. A person who says, oh, I really believe, but there is no corresponding actions, does not really believe. If I said that, boy, this tent's burning down, we're all going to die if we don't get out of here. And if you sat there and said, praise God, I believe that. But you just sat there and didn't do anything, people would think you're crazy. It doesn't work that way. If you really believe something, you're going to act. Now, there can be different actions. Some of you might scream. Some of you might faint. Some of you might get mad at somebody else. Why did you start this fire? Some of you might put out the fire. But if you really believed it, there would be action. Look over in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2 and 
verse 14. It says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? The answer to that question is no. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Nothing. You know, you could update this and bring it into modern terminology by saying it this way. If one of you is praying for a person who's in need and you're saying, Oh God, I pray that you bless them, but you don't do anything to help them and you are where you can, you haven't done a thing. Your prayer is useless. Now, there are some instances where you can't physically do it, and so you can pray, and, but you pray labors across the path. Somebody that will sow the seed, somebody that will give the finances, that will give the food or something. That's the way that you make prayer effective. Just praying for things and believing that prayer is going to do it is wrong. Somebody with a physical human body is going to have to act on prayer to see any prayer have any power at all. That usually goes over about like that. In verse um, 17, it says, Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yeah, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Of course, that is a sarcastic statement. This is one of the most sarcastic statements in the whole Bible. This is not blessing you for believing there's one God. It's, it's ironic. It's saying, You believe there's one God? Big deal. So does the devil. But believing there's one God won't do one thing for you until you act on it. He says, You believe that there's one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe in trouble, but won't thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. What these passages of Scripture, this is problematic to a lot of people. And when I first started studying grace, this was problematic for me because I, over in Romans chapter 3, I believe it's verse 29, it says, Faith, you are saved by faith without works. This says, Faith without works is dead. Can faith save a person? It looks like they're saying opposite things, but as you study the Scriptures, like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 3, verse 4 right there, it talks about works of faith. And then in other places it talks about works of the law. What this is talking about is when it's, when it's discrediting faith and speaking against, or, or discrediting works and speaking against works, it's talking about actions that you do trusting in your own actions to earn the favor and the blessing of God. That is a work of the law, and that is no good. God hates that because you aren't going through a Savior. You're trusting your own goodness. You believe you're getting what you deserve. God despises that. But on the other hand, faith is the thing that releases the ability of God, but it has to be a faith that is acted on, a faith that has works not of the law, but works of faith. In other words, a faith that is so strong that it actually impacts your action. If a person says, oh, I believe, but then you're acting contrary to what you say you believe, you have no authority. You might have faith, but it is not complete until you act on it. There is no power released until you act on it. See, this is what I'm teaching all about authority. Your actions. This, this is really good. I believe in grace. God loves you independent of your actions, but your actions are vital. That does not mean that you can go live in sin. God may still love you, and you may still have grace if you're living in sin, 
but you aren't going to have authority living in sin. When you yield yourself to sin, you are yielding yourself to Satan, the authority of that. And so it's important to understand that God still loves you because all of us commit sin, and when we, when we do sin, instead of feeling like, oh, God, you don't love me now, you could never use me, I sin. No, that'll drive you from God. You need to know that God loves you even in the midst of your sin, and you run right back to him, but you still ought to hate sin because that sin is giving Satan dominion, authority in your life. You are empowering him. Every time you get bitter and angry and every time you go out and do something contrary to God's plan, you are empowering Satan and you're just allowing Satan to come in and do his best. And I guarantee you, Satan will come against you to steal, kill, and destroy. You cannot afford the luxury of having Satan hinder you through the sin and through the things that you're committing. So as much as you can, you need to live holy. You need to act on the Word of God. When it comes to finances, if you're praying and believing God for finances... But then you're going around speaking that I'm poor, nothing ever works for me. It's not going to work. You're acting contrary. I tell you what, a person who is not giving. See, this is an answer to another question. Some people say, well, brother, I believe in grace, and I'm out from under the law, and I don't have to pay my tithes. I believe that. I may get in trouble. I heard Dean say something the other night that's probably different than this. I do not believe that you have to tithe. I believe God will love you if you don't tithe. I believe it's still God's will to bless you and to prosper you financially if you don't tithe. I do not believe God is going to curse you if you don't tithe. I'm redeemed from the curse of the law. I don't believe that God is going to curse me. But you have to believe in prosperity in some way that you can act on it. How do you act in faith that God is going to prosper you? God gave us a very simple way. And that is, take 10% of everything that you get and give it. I don't have to do it, but if I'm really in faith, I guarantee you I will do it because I've got to act in faith. How do you do it? I give. And that gift in the New Testament is not a, an act of debt or a bondage, but it's an act of, Father, I believe you. And I believe you to the degree that instead of me taking 100% and trying to use it, I'm going to give. And a person who says, well, I believe in God for prosperity, well, then give. And I say, well, I can't give. I don't have enough to go around as it is. And if I, don't, if I give, I won't ever get my needs met. Well, then you can say you believe in prosperity, but you don't. You don't really believe God. If you really believe God, you could put that money in there saying, Father, this is the way I'm proving. This is the way I'm acting on my faith. If God is real, then this prosperity stuff works. If God isn't real, then you ought to keep 100% of what you've got because, man, you're going to need every penny of it. But if God is real, then give, and give more than 10%. Give above and beyond 10%. Give whatever you purpose in your heart, whatever you believe God's leading you to give. When somebody puts a challenge before you, go the extra mile like Dean's been talking about. I believe in giving, but the motivation has to be that, Father, this is the way I'm expressing my faith. If you truly believe, you're looking for some opportunity. God, how can I act? How can I release authority? How can I do something? And God said give. He, he did that just like putting clay on a man's eyes and say, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Do you have to have mud put on your eyes and go wash in the pool of Siloam to get healed? No, but you do have to act in faith. Do you have to give to be able to prosper? Well, technically, no, but you do have to act in faith. And tell me, how else are you going to express faith in the area of finances unless you give? 
How are you going to act in faith? Man, the simplest way to act in faith is to say, God, I believe your promise. You said give and it shall be given unto me. So I'm giving. And I believe it's going to give un- be given unto me. Man, giving is vitally important. There's some of you in here that are believing for prosperity and yet you will not give a tithe. And you say, well, I want to give a tithe and when God blesses me and I have enough left over after I pay my bills and do everything I need, then I'll give a tithe. Well, it doesn't take any faith then. It'll not work. Now, this is probably not a typical church. Dean will literally beat the tithe out of you. But... That's true. But in a typical church, I can guarantee you that less than 20% of, the, of Christians give. That's the truth. If this was typical, that means that there's only 20% of you in here that give tithe or give above a tithe. And I can promise you that the people who are the tithers are the ones who are blessed. Now, some people look at that and say, well, that's because they tithe. No, it's because they believed and believed enough to act, and tithe was the way they expressed it. It's the way they did it. It becomes bondage if you say, give 10% and you automatically get blessed. But I can show you some people who tithe and didn't get blessed. Scripture says that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. It says that if you give your, or verse 3, if you give your body to be burned or give all of your goods to feed the poor and don't do it motivated by love, it profits you nothing. There are some people that have paid their tithes and yet have done it with the wrong motivation, feeling like this is what I'm doing. God, now you've got to bless me. And that's not faith. That's works. That's law. That's effort. But I, you can't show me anybody who gives with a pure heart and saying, God, I'm giving because I love you and this is the way. I believe your word and I'm giving because I'm acting in agreement with your word. You can't show me somebody like that that isn't prosperous. I guarantee you, you can give yourself out of poverty. Those of you that are waiting until you pray your way out of poverty and then you're going to give, it'll never happen. You can give your way out of poverty. It's, it has to do with authority. It's all concerning authority. Your body, until you get in agreement and start doing what you say you believe, you haven't released any power at all. You've got to act. That's the reason that the Lord did so many things, made people do things. That's the reason he couldn't do any mighty works in his hometown. That's the reason he went to the widow woman and ministered to her before he raised the son from the dead. And that's the reason that the Lord ministers to you the way that he does. You know, I actually had a man in one of my churches that I'd been trying to minister to, and I was trying to be so polite and so nice that I wouldn't uh, offend anybody. And I had a guy come through, and this guy was poor. He called us. He was out on the street, didn't have anything. His wife and kids, they weren't going to eat that night. Nothing was going to happen. And the guy called us out of desperation. And you know what I would have done? I'd have given this guy some money, which I don't think is totally wrong, but that's the way that I would have done it. I'd have given this guy some money and helped him. You know what the visiting minister did? He says, well, have you got anything? And the guy said, I've got one quarter. I was going to call my wife. And he says, give me your quarter. He says, I'll take it as an offering and pray over it. (laughs) And when I I thought, oh, God, what is going to happen when this happens? I said, I'm going to get in trouble for sure. This guy's got one quarter left, and this visiting preacher says, give me your last quarter. But you know what? I had enough sense to keep my mouth shut. He was older in the Lord than I was. So I let him take the guy's last quarter. And then he prayed over him and just says, praise God, I believe your need's meant. 
And you know what happened? He was staying in a hotel. He already had the hotel purchased for that night. When he got to the hotel, a guy drove up, and I don't know, I don't remember all the details. This has been over 20 years ago. But the guy drove up and somehow or another found out he was a construction worker and talked to him and hired him, put him on as the foreman of a ranch, gave him a house, gave him a month's paid salary in advance, and before he went to bed that night, he had a job and everything taken care of because that man knew how important it was to get that guy to do something in faith. What I would have done is say, well, here's $5. Go out and get you and your wife something to eat. Well, that would have been an awesome comparison, wouldn't it? See, this is, what, this is what Elijah did with the widow woman. This widow woman was getting last little bit of stick so she could fix her last bit of food and go eat it and die. And Elijah said, fix me something first. And she says, but I'm getting this so that I can fix my last little bit of meal and oil and eat it and die. And he says, fix it for me first. How many of you are bold enough to tell somebody that's on their last little bit, they're just fixing to die, and you say, well, go ahead and die, but fix me something first. <laughs> Here's a man that would do that. I tell you what, there's a lot of people offended by Dean. And, and there's, there's other people that could say what Dean is saying and be as crooked as the day is long. That's true. There are some people that could manipulate people, but I tell you, it's real with Dean, and I appreciate it. And I have seen people in this church. I have seen them come and begin to prosper, and this church is doing things at churches that have people in their church that are much more prosperous and many more people. You're doing more than most churches, and it's because this man's tough in this area, and it's because he understands it. I tell you what, you need to act in faith. And we got a lot of people in churches today who are believing the right things, but they aren't acting. They aren't doing anything. They aren't putting themselves on the line, and because of it, they're being held back. It's love that Dean gets tough on you, tells you what to do. There's a lot of people that don't like it, but you know what? Most of us need somebody to get tough with us. I tell you what, it's powerful. Your actions, your body. Don't sit there and say, well, I'm believing God for my healing as you pop your pills and let your wife rub your fevered brow and act sick. I had somebody come to me last night. Should I quit my medication? And you know, this is a touchy area. You can get in trouble. And you know the way I answer that is? I said, well, it depends on what you believe. If you believe you're sick, take it. Sick people take medication. If you believe you're well, don't take it. That keeps me covered. <laughs> if you quit your medication and die, you didn't believe you as well or it would have worked. I will admit this, that you can get healed while you're taking medication, depending on where you're coming from. Some of you... It may be a huge step of faith for you to just step out and maybe decrease your medication or something. It's just do something in faith. I've talked to people before that were paralyzed, and I said, do something. Can you wiggle any part of your body? And I say, well, I can move my little finger. And I say, move it and have them start doing something. And as they start doing that, healing begins to flow and things start happening. You may not be able to just... It might scare you to death to quit your insulin. Scare you to death, literally. Amen. 
And so I can't tell you that, yes, you should quit your insulin, but I can say this, that when your faith is complete, you're going to have to quit taking your insulin. Well, people don't take insulin. Well, insulin will hurt a well person. So eventually, you are going to have to quit acting sick. But can I, do I tell you that you've got to stop now? No, it depends on where you are. Some of you may need to... You know, I've had people before take off their glasses and say, I'm throwing my glasses away. And I've actually told them, I said, can you really believe? Well, no, I'm scared. I don't think it. I say, keep your glasses and use them to read the Bible and build your faith and get strong. And then when you can believe, then take them off. Amen. God doesn't hate you if you're wearing glasses. It's not going to... You aren't going to go to hell for wearing glasses. So should everybody just take off their glasses? Should everybody, Well, no, it depends on where you are. It really depends on where your faith is. But ultimately, faith is going to have to be acted on. And a person who will never, ever act contrary to their fears and their sickness is not going to get well. You're going to have to act in faith. Amen? Praise God. Man, I need to quit. I'm sorry. I just keep going, but uh, I didn't even get where I was headed tonight. Maybe tomorrow. I know that these are simple things that I'm saying, but, you know, we need to be reminded of it. We need to start doing, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. we got to do what the Word says. I guarantee you, if you would start just taking some steps of faith, how many of you in here need a miracle in your life? Well, then ask God, God, what can I do? to head in that direction to release some power. You know, in the area of finances, there's a number of things that I do. One of them is that I've already got a list of what happens when somebody gives me a million dollars. I've already got it spent. I don't have the million dollars yet, but I've already got it written out. It's on my computer. I can show it to you. What I'm going to do with it because I believe it's coming. And if you believe it's coming, well, then why don't you act like it and begin to start making some plans? It dawned on me one day, I'd been praying for a million dollars, and the Lord said, and what would you do with it if I gave it to you? And I didn't have a clue. He said, you don't really believe you're going to get it, do you? You know what? Now i got my list made out. I know what I'm going to do with it. I've already started making some plans. Some of you are believing God for prosperity, and if God is dumping in your lap, you wouldn't have the slightest idea what to do with it. You aren't acting in faith. You aren't preparing. I've had people come for prayer before on their way to the hospital, already called, made a reservation, on their way to the hospital, they're coming and asking me if I'll pray for them. They've already planned to go to the hospital. They're just seeing if, you know, like, I dare you, see if God can do something in my life. And then they wonder why they weren't healed. Man, faith without works is dead. You need to start making some actions and, and making your actions line up with what you believe. And if you'll do that, you'll find out that your body is a powerful force. I've got to give one last example. And I'll make this real quick and hurry through this. But I hurt my back on, um, it was December the 31st. I can't remember what year, but it's the night that I got ordained to the ministry. It was a long time ago. And I was living in Seagaville, Texas. And I went out to raise this garage door and the thing was stuck. And as I pulled on it, I hurt my back and I fell on the ground and I was in such pain. I couldn't even yell out for help. And I had to just lay there for I don't know how long. Finally, my son Joshua, he was just about one year old, so it must have been um, 20 years ago. He came out there and he was playing around and I was able to whisper just a little bit. And I said, Joshua, go get mommy. And he just 
started saying, Mommy, and playing with me. Finally, I convinced him to go get Mommy. She came out there, and my compassionate wife, she's kind of like Dean over here, amen, saw me laying on the ground, and she says, What's wrong with you? I said, I hurt my back. And she said, Well, why don't you get up and believe God? Which is what I needed. So she, anyway, she grabbed me and pulled me up, and when I stood up, my shoulders went just back like this. My shoulder blades tough. I don't know what happened, but my shoulder, I could not keep them straight. And I had excruciating pain. I really hurt my back. And so I went in the house, and you know what I did? I prayed, and I believed God to heal me, but I can guarantee you that I did not give in to this. For over eight hours, I started doing exercises. I started bending and touching my toes. I started doing sit-ups. And I mean, I was going through terrible pain, but I was doing everything I could to resist that. Some people think that's stupid, but you know what I was doing? I was putting my body against this thing, not in agreement with it. I fought that thing all afternoon. And anyway, finally I could move, but I still had terrible pain. And my shoulders were back like this. And so I went to bed that night. I figured, well, this isn't, this isn't submitting. I would have gone to bed anyway, amen. <laughs> So I went to bed, and I believed that when I got up in the morning, I'd be normal. When I got up, I had no pain, but as soon as I stood up, my shoulders went back like this. I still didn't have pain, but I could, my, my shoulders were back like this. And so anyway, on January the 1st, that was the day I was going to be ordained to the ministry, I kept thinking about, oh, God, here I'm going to be, giving my testimony about, I'm a great man of faith and power, amen, with my shoulders back like this. And finally, I thought about canceling the whole thing and saying, I just can't make it. And I said, that is wrong. I said, I am healed. I refuse to submit to this thing. So I started getting ready to go to this service. I started washing my hair. I was sitting in the bathtub washing my hair. And when I put my neck down is when it hurt the worst. Boy, it hurt. And I started to call Jamie in to wash my hair for me. And I thought, no, bless God, if I was totally healed, I'd wash my own hair. I've never yet asked anybody to wash my hair. I said, nobody's going to wash my hair. And I put my head over and just started speaking in tongues at the top of my lungs. And somewhere between the first and the second rinse, all of the pain left. And I was able to stand up without my shoulders going back. And I went to that service that night and I, I totally healed. And you know, I am convinced that my actions were an important part of that healing. You've got to act. When I pastored in Childress, Texas, we saw hundreds of people healed, and I made them do what they couldn't do. If they had a broken leg, I would make them cut the cast off and walk. Some people, ah, brother, I believe that's a little severe. Well, that's the reason that we saw every person heal. I had a person that had a big old toothache, and their jaw was swollen out black and blue, and this guy I never will forget. He says, me, he's a Spanish guy, and he says, me came back from Paducah today, not too feeling real good. <laughs> And I said, I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to act like you're healed. He said, okay. And I prayed for him, and then I slapped him right in the jaw like that. Amen. And you know what? That, that swelling instantly went down, and within five minutes, the black and blue was gone, and he was totally healed. I prayed for a man that had ulcers, and I hit him in the stomach, knocked him to the ground. He was a lost man. But you know what? Before he could get up and fight me, he, he got up ready to hit me, and he pulled back, and he realized that the pain was all gone. He had been healed of his ulcers, and he got born again that day. We made people do what they couldn't do. People that had asthma, I'd make them run until they'd pass out. 
And when they'd pass out, I'd pray over them. As soon as they came to, I said, you get up and resist it. And guess what? Every one of them got healed, without exception. I don't do things exactly that way because not everybody understands what I'm doing and it wouldn't work. But when I had people that I taught them and they knew what I was doing, you had to act like you were healed or I wouldn't pray for you. And there were some people that says, I'm not going to do that. And I said, I won't pray for you. But as a result, every person we prayed for, with one exception, in two years' time, was healed instantly because we made people act on their faith. I tell you, there's power in it. There's a lot of power in it. You have authority that we just haven't been using. Amen?